Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. Sports journalism and the coverage of sports is something that listeners of this podcast are quite familiar with. And one could say this podcast falls into that sports coverage category. In recent years, we've seen a shift not only in sports journalism, but as journalism as a whole, back to the early days of the internet with the growing popularity of newsletters. This approach provides creators an incredible opportunity to reach their most engaged followers with niche stories that can cover the granular details far better than mass market publications. No one understands or has leveraged this model better than our guest today, Matt Brown. Matt is the founder of Extra Points, a newsletter that focuses on the college part of college sports. Extra Points covers all the -the off-the-field landscape that shapes college sports from the largest FPS schools to the smallest NAIA programs. Matt started Extra Points in April of 2020, and prior to going out on his own, he oversaw SB Nation's college team sites and was a regular contributor to SB Nation's college football coverage. In addition to Extra Points, Matt is also an author, and his book, What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Greatest Questions, covers pivotal moments throughout college football history, like the Airplane Conference and the University of Chicago's descent from D1 greatness. Matt has his undergraduate degree from The Ohio State University, grew up in Ohio, and currently resides in Chicago. It was an absolute joy to speak with Matt, and he brings such energy to his coverage of college sports. So we hope you all enjoy this conversation with Matt Brown. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We're really excited to have you. It's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. You have such an interesting background in sports, and we were talking before we got recording. In, in many ways, where you got today and in sports journalism kind of got there by happenstance or it came along in an interesting way. And so, can you give the listeners a view into how you got to where you are today with your writing career and so on? Yeah, it, I really did kind of fall into all of this by accident. You know, for one, I, I didn't go to journalism school. I have a bachelor's degree from Ohio State that doesn't even have a, an undergraduate journalism program. And I didn't really just commit or decide that I really wanted to write for a living until about the last quarter of my senior year or the last two quarters of my senior year. At that point, like I couldn't afford to transfer. I couldn't afford to change my major. Like I, I, I needed to graduate. I didn't come from a ton of money. Um, and my first job was teaching elementary school. I did teach for America, as, as maybe some of the listeners here may be familiar with. I went and taught fourth grade in New Orleans a couple of years after Hurricane Katrina. And I've joked about this. That this was actually extremely helpful professional education for my career as a reporter, because there's nothing that any administrator or coach can say to me that I didn't hear from a fourth grader with a lot more colorful language beforehand, right? Like that early jobs, talking to people that don't want to talk to you and trying to figure out how to communicate information in a way that uh, is, is not immediately apparent, like that, those are really important communicator jobs. Um, I was not a very good teacher. Right? Or I don't know how much people like know about, about Teach for America, but you know, this guy from a very rural middle of nowhere town in Ohio did not ha- I did not have the cultural capital um, or, or fluency, I think, to, to operate in the community where I was at that particular time. Um, after my, my, my that, that career ended, I was actually laid off at the end of teaching and I had a political science degree, was trying to figure out what to do next. I ended up taking a job working for a political campaign. I ran a field organizing office for, uh, at the time, Congressman Joe Donnelly. He would, would go on to become a senator out of Indiana, then later, I think, the ambassador to the Vatican, more of a blue dog Democrat guy. So my job was to run an office in rural Indiana, a place called Kokomo, 
not yeah. like the song, but it's very not tropical place. Um, you want to hear something for, crazy? Yeah, yeah. Is that where you're I, from? I grew up there. You grew, you grew up there. So, so I, I was, I spent all the time off 31 and Logansport and and yeah. Plymouth and all this. I actually places. grew up in between. I say Kokomo because it's the yeah. biggest place close to where I grew up. Sure. I grew up in between Kokomo and Logansport, a little town called Walton, Indiana. So I, 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 I probably knocked both the doors in Walton. I'm, Probably so, might have knocked on so, my parents' door. They're still I, there. I might have. And let me tell you, like that was the Tea Party election. Um, mm. So again, a great experience of trying to talk to people that do not want to talk to you or try to convey information to to a, a, a more skeptical audience. I, I tried to. I realized that wasn't for me uh, either. And uh, you really was trying to get a writing job, but you know this was two thousand, uh, you know, 2010, 2011. and. Uh, we just had this gigantic financial catastrophe with Lehman Brothers, and I didn't have a J-School degree. So I would freelance for the Chicago Tribune. I'd freelance um, for the Sun-Times. I'd covered high school sports. I would freelance for SB Nation. I did that for three years while working just a regular old HR job. And I was about to go get my MBA and, 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 and I go into nonprofit fundraising when Vox Media offered me a full-time job because there they were looking for somebody who had not just had some sports writing experience, which I had had, but some teaching experience and an ability to function in a really fast paced, demanding world. And if you can teach, if you can be in a campaign office, you can handle chart beat, right? You can handle some of the online things. They could teach you about SEO and teach you about how to be a reporter. That was a great job. I was there for about seven years and eventually would end up running all of their team site programming. So it was a, a writing job, but also managing a budget, uh, hiring a, a staff, uh, trying to train people. Uh, I, I was It was part reporter, part editor, part shrink. Um, and it was rewarding, but a lot of different jobs. But when the pandemic hit, Vox Media was already going in this direction where they wanted to get rid of sports coverage. They wanted to focus more on you know, 95 corridor political coverage. So they laid me off and they laid off almost our entire team. Then it's 2020 and I'm married. I have children. I have a mortgage. I can't really go move to Brooklyn for $42,000 a year and take some entry-level blogging gig. Mm -hmm. And because of the pandemic, none of the Chicago outlets are hiring. So the only, like for me, I started Extra Points out of desperation, not out of some deep-seated entrepreneurial spirits to throw off the shackles of editors and write about the the things that I wanted to do. It was more of, it's either this or go work at the Jewel Osco deli counter because there, there weren't a whole lot of other things happening. And I decided, well, if I'm going to go into business for myself, I'm going to write about the things that I care the most about and the things that I can do that I don't think anybody else can because you know I've got this education background, I've got a political background, I've got an open records background, I've learned to do these kind of outsider reporter things. Let me go focus on the off the field stuff now that I have some experience doing it, and we'll see if somebody will pay for it. And I've been very blessed. This is we're about to celebrate the third birthday of Extra Points. It's been acquired. It's now a sustainable, independent, small publishing business that pays me more than I ever made at Vox. And it's kind of carved out a little niche for itself within the college sports ecosystem. It's been a, it's 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 been a a, a wild ride for sure. And it's an amazing story, and I think that it's so cool to think about. My father was a high school teacher. My mother was a school nurse. My sister is a high school teacher. My sister is an elementary school. And it's very different now than like when my father started. But you're right. If you want to figure out how to tackle difficult conversations, do it with an adolescent in school because they are really interested in what you have to say. So I think it's such good view of that into bringing it into your writing. You mentioned, though, you focus on a lot of the off the field stuff mm -hmm. and, and not only off the field stuff, but your writing has a central focus on college sports primarily, correct? 
Yeah. I, I, in fact, un, universally, and, and I tell folks, I cover college athletics from the largest Power Five conference here in the Big Ten down to the NAIA, Division Three, small tuition-dependent schools, but it's 100% just college sports coverage. Which I think is really great because oftentimes, and we were talking about this before we started recording, I think in in our program, in our class, we sometimes think about the business of sports and it leans professional sports because you think of big business. But also college sports is a huge business along with the fact that in the last year to 18 months, so much has changed in college sports. And I'm sure that has given you enormous fodder from a writing perspective, but how has that shift in things like NIL and conference realignment really change the way that you look at the writing or the topics that you're covering? Yeah, I I don't want to say that it was good timing to start a business covering off the field issues in 2020, because (laughs) launching a business during a global pandemic is never something I would recommend. But in many ways, I think that off the field market matured very quickly because there is so much uh, transformational change happening in college athletics. And some of that is related to just what you were talking about. Um, the, The opening up of name, image and likeness. Uh, which is both an influencer marketing story. It is an education story. It's a under the table, like recruiting and fundraising story that's been part of college athletics the last hundred years. And it's also changing how administrators and athletes at every level reconsider what amateurism means. Um, so that's, I mean, I could write about that every day and, 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 and have something new to talk about because what it looks like at Northwestern and my alma mater at Ohio State and at Eastern Illinois and at Hinsdale are all or Wheaton are all extremely different things. And those mm-hmm. perspectives are not always being shared. But you also now have what's happening politically with Congress and the and the and the federal court system potentially changing what college athletics means. And it's also a time during really significant upheaval in American higher education in general. You've got mm-hmm. an enrollment cliff and major demographic challenges. You have lawmakers become, in some states becoming much more politically engaged or hands-on in what curriculum or tenure uh, or, or administrative goals look like. And all of those have college sports angles. So for a one-man shop that's publishing four days a week, I tell everybody, I have way more things to write about than I have the capacity to do it. And and sometimes I joke that uh, we've all been blessed to work in interesting times, although I wish maybe sometimes those times were a little bit more boring because doing a more kind of blocking and tackling basic by the number story, maybe for a sport I'm less familiar with might have value, but it's much harder to do when the structure of the industry itself is, is a little bit on fire and has been for the last three years. It's such a good way to frame it though, because oftentimes in our current landscape, everyone is very quick to say the sky is falling. Everything yeah. is terrible. And these shifts in college athletics, conference alignment, NIL, things that we mentioned are ruining sports or changing. And that could be a good opinion. But I like how you spun that in the sense of it really is an opportunity of lots of things that are opening up and lots of things for you to write about. Yeah. But I guess in general, these shifts and changes, conference alignment, NIL specifically, this, this is a, a loaded question and maybe a little nuanced answer. Do you think they're moving in a good direction for college sports? Well, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I would say, I think they're a little bit different. So I'll focus on NIL first. And I honest, honestly believe on the balance, NIL has been a net positive. And I'll, I'll, give, you an, I'll give you an example. One of the things that maybe. Uh, maybe your audience is doesn't uh, doesn't understand quite as much, but to be a Division One athlete 
at any sport, particularly in the Power Five, can be a very lonely experience because your world shrinks to your locker room, to your athletic building, and, and to that particular world. Very few Division One P5 athletes can go tell their coach they're going to go study abroad in Italy and be gone for four months. You don't have the same internship opportunities. You might even be sequestered with where you live. And if you are an athlete that comes into that world without the social capital and the connections of, say, a typical Northwestern undergrad or a typical Kellogg graduate student, then you are not getting the same college experience or college education that other people are getting. So one of the real beauties of NIL right now is that it might it allows an athlete from small town Ohio, like where I'm from, or Meridian, Mississippi, or the Palouse in in in, in Western Washington to come to some the school and it and meet people that work in financial services, that meet people in white collar employment, that are entrepreneurs, that are involved in capital. So when they leave and most likely do not pursue a professional career in sports, and even at very big schools, they can walk away saying, I've got people which is what regular undergrads get when they join a fraternity or when they join a business incubator or through their major that many athletes aren't able to get. And NIL is a vehicle for that. And like for me, I almost get emotional thinking about it. Like, like th- this is this is what American higher education is supposed to be about. This is how we help with class mobility and building generational wealth. And that is a blessing. When I talk to people who use this as a, as a catalyst for starting a business, many businesses have nothing to do with their identity as an athlete. It's very exciting. This is part of what being 20 and 21 is about. Even if those businesses fail, that's okay. I also think, though, that we can't be blind to the fact that NIL has not meant that has not meant an end of athlete exploitation. Um, they certainly don't get a direct share of the enormous amount of value that they generate for in terms of media rights or MMR rights for their schools. And this ecosystem, because it isn't really regulated, in my reporting. Uh, I believe it has also empowered a group of rent seekers or third parties to offer a different kind of exploitation, particularly with agents. Do you have, you know, many of your colleagues here that are looking to be an agent and represent uh, athletes in the NFL? You're going to have to be NFLPA certified. You're going to have to finish this graduate degree. You're going to have to pass an exam. Uh, you're going to have to demonstrate competence to the certification board. Is the, the union does not want any Yahoo to come in there and rip off one of their members. We can be a college agent today. All I have yeah. to do is change my Twitter bio and say, I'm a college agent. I don't have to have a degree. I don't have, I don't have to have passed the bar. I don't have to demonstrate that I'm acting in my client's fiduciary interest. Um, there's a lot of predatory people out there and yeah. we're, and, 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 and there, and in some, and in some, not all, but some of the collective space. And um, that isn't being addressed very well. So it's, it, it's a mixed bag, but I look at this and I can understand some fans frustrations, but on the balance, I believe it is a, it is a, a real net positive for us. I think there's two big positives. We often hear the stories, and you will have a better insight on this than me, of that 1% to 2% of the athletes that are making big money in men's and women's sports, whether it's in men's basketball or football, women's basketball, the middle section of the people that are making some walking around money to be able to go out or buy a coat. I think that we're seeing a lot of value there. Yeah. But the bigger value to me that you mentioned is that education piece. If the remit of a university is to prepare those students for life after college, what an amazing education that they're getting doing these things. So it's marketing, branding, contracts, finance, all of these things, doing it at a personal level. So they're much more ingrained and have a much more vested interest in it than 
me showing up at a 600 person lecture and learning about the fundamentals of marketing. So I think that you're absolutely right that there's a lot to be gained from that just from the experience that's there. Yeah. And and we've even seen a couple of universities, I think, um, make that even more explicit by making four credit NIL courses. And they mm-hmm. say, listen, rather than give a consulting company $35,000 to build a curriculum for us, uh, let's bring in our, mar- our our business school. Let's bring in some people that actually know marketing, that know entrepreneurship, that know the tax laws in this state. And let's do it together. And let's give you six credit hours. Because one of, the, uh, one of the challenges I think we've seen in this world is a lot of well-meaning middle-aged people come in and say they want to help educate college athletes, forgetting what it's like to be 20, especially when your job is essentially a 30-hour week time commitment anyway. So being hauled into another media room to be talked at, even if it's important, like if you, you know, I, I see a lot of people coming in from like Chase Bank or from, you know, a consulting company or a personal finance firm, and they're talking to an auditorium of 200 athletes and no one's going to remember any of that. Right. When you are 20 and you're already exhausted and someone says the words 401k, that's you're, you're asleep. Um, yeah. But to do it together and make it an object lesson and then attach course credit and then add a semblance of accountability to the athlete, um, I, I think is is a, is a significant positive. And, and part of the holistic mission of what a lot of these undergraduate programs are supposed to be about. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot still to unfold, but then, yeah. as you mentioned, legislation from a federal level, but it's state by state level, much, much more to unfold with NIL. The other thing that's so front of mind these days is conference realignment. Yeah. And we see, you know, I went to two big 10 schools, Purdue and, and Northwestern. It's still a little odd to me to think that the big 10 now includes Rutgers in Maryland, but even more strange to think that it's going to have that West Coast component with UCLA and USC. How much of your time is spent on those types of stories? And how do you think the impact of those is reshaping college athletics? I spend a lot of time on those. And, and part of it is because every time there's a cataclysmic event, like a Texas or Oklahoma joining the SEC or the Los Angeles schools joining the Big Ten, is that typically leads to trickle down uh, impacts that change league membership sometimes all the way down to division two. If we go back last, you know, to when Texas and Oklahoma joined the SEC, that led to the big 12 poaching the American athletic conference, the American athletic conference poached conference USA who poached FCS schools who poached the Lone Star conference in division two. It goes all the way down. It led to some schools in Connecticut changing leagues that I hadn't even heard of until I started this beat. So trying to, there are, there are a lot of people trying to make phone calls to figure out what the big 10 is going to do next. I found there are not as many people making phone calls about what's going to happen with the Northeastern Conference. And are they going to add Lemoyne or Bentley or New Haven, uh, you know, from Division Two? And that's a niche where I am. But these moves are so enormous and impact so many different kinds of people that there are uh, there's a there's an enormous amount of secondary stories that, that you can write. So for, I, I, for uh, to localize this, for an example, with our two Los Angeles, these two new Los Angeles institutions joining the big time. One thing that I don't think casual fans fully appreciate is that national travel for athletes is not created equally. It is one thing to fly from Los Angeles to Seattle. That takes four hours. It's a pain in the butt, but there's no time zone change. Right. To fly from Seattle to Columbus, or to fly from Los Angeles to Columbus, where you're now going to Eastern time, is dramatically more um, uh, negative for the athlete. It messes, and, and we we have peer-reviewed research on this. It messes with your legs. It messes with your sleep schedule. And on the pros, generally, you're on the road for 10 days, and you can acclimate right. yourself a little bit. And that's not really the case here 
for college students who can't miss they, that much class. They you almost can't do stagger it. Right. And in the pros, they almost do it iteratively. If the Bulls are yeah. going to go play in Indiana, then they're going to go play in Detroit, then they're going to go play in Cleveland, and they're going to play in New York and come back. Whereas it, yeah. some field hockey player might be flying from LA to College Park, Maryland and playing one game and turn around and coming home. So now you have an enormous LSAT problem from hell trying to build a schedule to minimize those travel disruptions and fit with everybody's facility requirements and capabilities and your television partners. So that doesn't just impact football and men's and women's basketball. That's a softball story. I mean, that's a story for the director of operations for softball. It's a story for the flights. It's a story about the travel agencies that the Los Angeles schools need to do. What kind of innovative scheduling you you can you can set up to limit that kind of travel. Um, it's a television story. And next thing you know, like there's nine little newsletters just about that exact thing. So that ends up being a, a pretty significant part of my time. There's a lot of competition on the internet to write about who is the Big Ten going to add next or what does the football schedule look like? And every once in a while, I can beat ESPN on that kind of story, but that's very hard to do. But can I write the story about um, how do, does how will UCLA travel to Iowa when Iowa is part of the California state government banned states because of LGBTQ laws? And how do you move the money and be compliant with California's legislature? That's my story, because I know Pete Damel is not going to write that, but my audience will care about it. And I think what's so interesting about what you just said is the average person who sits and consumes sports news. We don't see those nine stories. We see the top line, hey, yeah. conference realignment, football, basketball, and baseball, or football, basketball, women's basketball. I worry less about the travel and considerations for those revenue driving sports, women's basketball, men's basketball, football, and so on. But as you mentioned, as you get down into those other sports, it, those logistics become crazy. And yeah. we're not thinking about that as the average fan from a story perspective, but there's a lot there because that's the latent sake of the athletes at a university. Most of them aren't playing men's and women's basketball or football. There's tons of other sports and they're really going to be impacted by this. Yeah. Not to say nothing of the five or six other industries that are tied to you know, that, that are supporting all of these things. And you're absolutely right. That's not going to be the headline on ESPN. It's not going to be the headline in the Chicago Tribune. And I don't think I, I say that's not not to be critical, because, you know, if you are writing for a mass market publication, it's your job is to appeal to the largest possible audience. And not everybody really cares what happens to UCLA water polo, which I understand. One of the blessings of writing in a subscription model, I sell ads, but the vast majority of my revenue comes from reader subscriptions, is that I don't care if 300,000 people read my story or not. Like, that doesn't appreciably change my revenue. What I need to do is find 1,000 people for who this information is so interesting that they're willing to pay $8 a month for it. Um, and, and I can do that by writing something that nobody else does. So I don't have a mass market reach. I write a niche publication for niche people. And my audience includes the most hard, hardcore fans who love so much about college sports that if I say, hey, who wants to read an article about Ball State sponsorship you know, plan? They're going to go, yes, because I am into I'll read everything. That's, that's a small market. That's OK, because if I can combine that with undergraduates who need this for school and if I can combine that with ADs and conference commissioners and associate ticket industry professionals like a B2B model, mm -hmm. you combine all of those. I don't need that scale. I just need the right people. And that is a business model that works really well for niche publishing, but that works really well for a bunch of other niche problems in the sports industry that I don't think has been fully appreciated. 
just such as, and the reason I ask that is, it's such a cool shift to me. We live in a subscription economy these days. Sure. I mean, everything is a subscription, but it's been really cool to see the shifts back. You know, Substack is obviously very popular and it's weird to see how we've almost in some ways gone back to some web 1.0 constructs yeah. of the newsletter, but it's, it's giving you more of what you want. And I think that you're right that savvy users want to get the things that they want and not consume all of the things for the I don't mean this derogatorily, but the lowest common denominator. If you're writing that mass market article, you will have to appeal to that mass audience when you can do something like you do and have that niche audience and have the subscription. And it's people that really want to be there. It gives you the opportunity to drill down into it, which I think is really cool. I've been fortunate. A guy that I know, Ben Thompson, has a newsletter called Stratechery. And that's 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 the 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 north star for me and so many of my peers. That's a it's a perfect example of what we're trying to do. And he's been banging this drum for a long time that these are the most engaged people anyway. These fans that are going to pay for this newsletter, pay for this content are the most engaged anyway. That's who I want to write for because they're getting the most benefit. And I think it's a really awesome business model to be able to write the things that you want to write and have that fan base really built in there. It's it's an it's an enormous blessing. I, I joked about this my first year. I wrote substantially more about UConn football than I did <laughs> Alabama football. And I think I was the only only person outside of, you know, suburban stores or Hartford that did something like that. And it was just because there's 55 people writing about Alabama and there's not, not a whole lot interesting. And you can, I can say that, but there's only two writing about Connecticut and they're both weirdos. And, and, <laughs> and so there and there's there's a, there's a pathway there. And I, I, if I, I think about this now, like if I wasn't I'll give an example, like if I wasn't in the publishing world, but I wanted to apply this kind of master a particular niche principle well within the sports industry. There is a tech problem that doesn't have a great solution right now. Now that we are in a post-NIL, post-transfer portal world, what that means is for every single college sport, um, athletes can now transfer and shift very very easily. And many of them do. Uh, for men's basketball right now, we're looking at between 20 and 25% of all of the total athletes are going to hit the transfer portal. So let's now imagine ourselves as a low major division one school let's say we're eastern illinois let's say we're ball state or um you know indiana purdue fort wayne something like that you don't have an army of staffers to comb through a gigantic roster of potential people who could play on your team uh, that which means which includes not just the list of high schoolers which might be 300 prospects that you're scouting but now the list of people in the transfer portal division one and division two that might be 800 to a thousand prospects and then potentially international players who, who who may be a part of that pool. Now you're looking at one guy who's probably a graduate assistant, or some or or another assistant basketball coach who's making fifty one thousand dollars a year. It cannot digest and go through that data. And the amount of time that it takes them to go through that data is time that they're not spending on their core competency, which is instruction of basketball principles development of the players already on your roster or building meaningful relationships with potential recruits. The transfer portal itself is basically just a big XLS spreadsheet. If there was somebody who created a relatively affordable software solution that was just focused on basketball to help run queries for that data or to help uh, a coach feel confident in the, in the accuracy of that data or to move that 1,000 person list into 52 people, something that's accessible, every single athletic department in the country would pay for it. And not just Division I schools, but potentially Division II schools, potentially AAU programs. Um, and the 
solutions to, to, to provide those kind of uh, answers, to fix those kind of problems for the non-Power 5 programs don't really exist as much. You, there's, there's some of this is happening in shot tracking and some basic advanced stats for basketball, for football, for baseball. It's been there a little bit longer. But even then, I think there's an opening for translating those stats into an insight that an overworked coach or a 20-year-old can understand. We can print on all the advanced baseball stats you want, and if it looks like Greek to me, it's going to look like Greek to a 19-year-old who's only halfway paying attention anyway. What they need is an index card so the coach can say, hey, we ran the numbers in the computer, and it says you're twice as likely to hit a double if you wait on this breaking ball. Let's practice that for a week. That doesn't exist very well right now. And somebody who wants to be the GM of the Cubs or wants to be involved in these pro sports things, there's a lot of money to be made in the college space too. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because you're right. A lot of our listeners and the students of the program go down that track. It's even funnier because I was a flight home this week and my son fell asleep and I watched Moneyball. And yeah. he talks about, it's about boiling it down to one number. And I think that there is space in that transfer portal. I went to undergrad at Purdue and yeah. every day I get a text from a friend that's like, oh, this guy's going in the transfer portal. Or this guy is potentially going to come to Purdue. And I don't know even know who half the people are. I've never heard of them because there's, like you said, there's just a dearth of, of information. I think that's a real opportunity, but actually kind of spins it forward for me in something. I come from a tech background. I teach the technology of sports class. And then my day job is in technology and in technology. The thing that is front of mind for everybody is generative AI and how these large language models are impacting lots of different things. Do you see that having an impact on your job? Now, there is some level of data-driven journalism, which is much more for small bites and those things. Yeah. But do you see generative AI having any view or any impact in the journalism space? It's a great question, right? And there's a whole lot of, it's a very popular kind of story to write right now about how the generative AI is going to come take all of our jobs. And we, on some level, the AI is getting good enough to write a very basic game recap. And there are a couple of companies that mostly in the small college and high school space that will write very basic gamers for staffs that don't have uh, staffers to do it themselves. And it's about the same quality of a, of like a decent high schooler, right? Mm -hmm. uh, AI cannot write what I write yet. And I've tried uh, it might be able to at some point in the future, but I found that the more niche and specific you get, the more likely it is that the computer will make a fact er, factual error, right? It doesn't scrape the internet the, the same way exactly. And I've heard other writers say, this is really useful for story ideation. This is useful for, for, for organization. I haven't found it that way. It's funny. I actually did, did use ChatGPT for a story last week as a joke. Um, and what I did is like, okay, there's going to be a lot of coverage about the Pac-12 and the Big 12 dueling television deals. Um, I could sit here and I could write a recap or, or an analysis of the essentially the same story that's been written for four months. Or uh, I'm going to have ChatGPT summarize it in the voice of Cookie Monster. <laughs> or I'm going to have ChatGPT summarize the story in Samuel L. Jackson's voice. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's over the top and everything. And it's supposed to be this meta commentary on the uselessness of this particular kind of reporting and and that the, the chat gives me a gag. But if I sit down there and say, hey, listen, I'm writing a story right now about uh, whether the NCAA should carve the women's basketball tournament out of their next television package. And I want to better understand, uh, you know, how that might impact ratings for women's hockey. Who are some experts I should talk to? How, how should I organize this story? It's not getting me anything useful. Yeah. And I think that you're right in that we see a lot of disruption in creative spaces where Things like mid journey or stable diffusion that can create images and so on 
But to me, as someone who's worked in technology their entire career, it's just like the internet. It's another tool. It's another tool that creative people, that people such as yourself that craft these stories with so much nuance and specificity can use eventually down the road with your research or ideation or as a gag or something like that. But they're certainly not replacing that just yet. And I don't think that we'll get there. I think that we need to look at it as an opportunity as another tool in the tool belt. I think there's one thing that we kind of have talked about along with all the the work that you do day to day from a writing perspective, I've written a book as well. Writing a book is something I've always wanted to do in my life and never had the fortitude to do it in lots of different ways. But that book focuses on college football and it talks about some of college football's greatest questions. I guess, what are those? What are some of those great questions in college football? Um, You know, my favorite, and this is one that is not appreciated, I think, by most fans, is that comes back to the early 1950s. And this is just as television was becoming uh, more ubiquitous nationwide. Uh, The the, the, the sports television industry really kind of centered around New York and Philadelphia, starting to mature by the early 1950s, Notre Dame and Penn, the Penn Quakers of what would become later the Ivy League, had signed school-specific television contracts. It was like with like Dow Chemical, I think, was going to be the, the, the presenting sponsor for, for Penn football. And they had scheduled teams like Ohio State and Notre Dame and wanted to play a nationwide schedule. And the NCAA freaked out and uh, essentially created the modern administrative state, forced them to cancel their contracts and made a centralized NCAA television contract, which was the case up until... The Supreme Court ruled in 1984 that the NCAA, that was an unfair restraint of trade. But for decades, the NCAA controlled what games are going to be on TV uh, as a way to um, limit overexposure of certain teams and as a way to protect gate attendance, which is how most teams made their money. Uh, it also meant that the NFL became much more popular than college football because that was on TV and, and, and relatively easy to get. So, you know, looking at this, had that gone the other way? Well, you don't have the modern NCAA administrative state that doesn't really have the power to levy significant sanctions because it doesn't control the financial purse of television, changes the, the how the, the 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 growth of the NFL. And we also might be looking at a world where Penn is in the Big Ten and Penn State isn't because that was a bigger program then. Harold Stassen was the university president of Penn. He was former Minnesota governor. He was trying to run for president. He wanted to model Penn after Minnesota. Well, what would that have done for the last 50 years of college sports history. Like, and, and, and the, you know, there's a couple of these bigger administrative business stories in the 40s and 50s that, in my view, as an amateur historian, really shifted the world that, that, that supports college athletics right now. Yeah, it's so fascinating that these little decisions here and there have such an impact on these things, whether that's from an administrative level or even on the field. And it's really cool to see those things. And it's a definite one that I want to check out and dig into deeper and, and get into some of those questions. There's a million questions I have because we didn't cover the political crossroads and so yeah. on, but I'll get you out of here on this. I thought that you do and, and being so ingrained in college athletics on a day-to-day basis and the things that you're writing about, what do you see in the next year, the next 18 months, the next five years as the stories that are going to develop most and going to be the most prevalent in college athletics overall? I think the single biggest one is I believe it is not a matter of if, but a matter of when and a matter of who, um, where college athletes are deemed employees. Um, what, what's happening right now is you have a major federal case working its way uh, in Pennsylvania, Johnson v. at NCAA, where the core of the case is whether certain college football players should have been classified as employees. 
and therefore should have been we would have a minimum wage and pay payroll taxes and, and have all of the the benefits afforded with that. Um, the National Labor Relations Board, the entity that uh, at one point ruled in favor of Northwestern football players uh, potentially creating a union, is hearing a case that would impact athletes nationally out of Los Angeles about whether they have been misclassified. There's another case, uh, House v. NCAA for back pay over NIL that will be hitting next year. To say nothing of Congress, also considering some of these questions here, it... I don't think the NCAA is going to be able to win all of these, especially because their record in court right now on antitrust cases has been very bad. And the questioning in, in Johnson was not it, it really looking in a, in a positive direction for them. So then the question, I think, is, will this apply to every athlete? Will this apply only to some football and basketball players or some baseball players? Will some uh, schools move more towards the Division Three model? Will Division Three athletes be employees? And how does that change how the money is distributed in this ecosystem? Uh, there's not a, an obvious answer to this question yet. It's still to, to be determined, and Congress is going to have a large role to play in that. But how that question gets answered, I think, will shape what happens with NIL collectives, many of which I imagine will go away in several years as their activity gets brought under a collective bargaining agreement. What what kind of union ends up being created to represent some of these employees? And what happens to Olympic sports programs? In this country, many of which I, I honestly believe would be threatened by moving to this model. What most countries do for their Olympic sport development is break is federalize it. It's either part of the armed forces or there's a there's a, a, a national minister of sport that pays for some of this development. As, a, as Americans, we kind of outsource that to colleges and let somebody else deal with it. If we're not going to be able to do it anymore and we still care about winning gold medals in the Olympics, somebody is going to have to pay for it. Can we pay for it with the national gambling tax? Are we willing to create a minister of sport as a federal cabinet position? Are we uh, hoping that the armed forces or that some private company will underwrite it? Do we care about the Olympics anymore? These are enormous questions and ones that are no longer just intellectual abstractions, but things that I believe are going to come to a head over the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah, they certainly are here. And you can see the seeds of them now. And what's great for all of us is that we have someone that we can go to get insight on those things. So Matt, tell us where listeners can find you and consume this. Sure. You can you can find Extra Points at extrapointsmb.com. It's a D1 ticker publication. You can either subscribe for free or uh, become a uh, full subscriber and get all the newsletters for just eight bucks a month. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Matt Brown EP or at Matt at extrapointsmb.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. There's a million things that I could have talked to you about and lots of different directions to go, but we really appreciate the time today, Matt. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 